The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to a very special episode of CMO Week on the MarTech Podcast. This week, we're talking to five CMOs to understand how they've navigated their way up the corporate ladder to become some of the most prominent marketers in the world. Joining us today is one of my marketing role models, Gary Briggs. Gary is a board member at Petco and Etsy, and is also the former chief marketing officer at a little social networking website that you may have heard of called Facebook. Prior to his work leading the marketing team at Facebook, Gary held executive marketing roles at Google, IBM, eBay, and Pepsi. Okay, that said, here is our interview with former CMO of Facebook, Gary Briggs. Gary, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Hey, thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. It's exciting to have you on the show, and it's great to reconnect. We work together, I guess it's been about 10 years now. Yeah. A lot has changed, but it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> thanks, Ben. So tell me a little bit, let's start from the beginning. How did you get into marketing? My father was in advertising. He worked on Madison Avenue back in the day. I think the reference I would make is he was of the Mad Men era, but I was fortunate we weren't that Mad Men dysfunction in our family. And it's kind of wild when I watch that show, by the way, because the sets remind me very much of McCann Erickson, which is where my dad worked at the time. But what really happened was I worked for my congressman. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, actually. And I worked for my congressman through college and then out of college. And I was at a fundraiser for him. And I had kind of realized that I really didn't want to have a career in government because I found it a little bit slow. But I was at a fundraiser for my congressman. I wasn't actually going to go to it. My dad encouraged me to go to it. We're at home that afternoon. And I was getting a beer at a keg. And a guy walks up and I offer him a beer. And he works at Pepsi and makes a deal with me over a conversation, which is if I work on his campaign, which is he's running for Board of Finance in my hometown of Stamford, Connecticut, he would get me an interview at Pepsi. And that really was my first break. It was a totally random interaction. I had applied to Pepsi as a junior in college for an internship and got turned down. This is back in 1985. So this is right after Old Coke, New Coke, and the Pepsi Challenge and all that sort of stuff. This Cola Wars was actually a thing back then. And I just fell in love with the energy of that industry. So you're early on in your career, you're still getting your education. You think that you're going to a role in politics and somebody basically says, hey, I'll trade you that beer for a Pepsi and it's worth an interview <laughs> to you. 
What was so attractive about Pepsi and specifically about the marketing roles that you would be applying for? Well, I wasn't making a lot of money in government. I realized that I was making $12,000 a year working for my congressman. And I thought this is not advancing very well and writing constituent correspondence is kind of slow. And what I liked about Pepsi was I started as a marketing analyst, actually. I was analyzing data off a Nielsen database on an IBM green screen terminal. And the mixture of data on one side and then the creativity of that culture where we were making a lot of ads. I got moved around in different roles at a relatively fast rate of speed, which was a good way to learn different things. I did as a marketing analyst for about 10 months, and then I worked over in promotions for about a year. And then I worked over new products for a little less than a year. And then what happened was two guys I worked with back then were early mentors of mine, had both graduated from Northwestern's business school, Kellogg, and really encouraged me to go to get my business degree. I was a political science major undergrad at Brown, didn't really know a lot about balance sheets and income statements and things like that, and decided to rather than go to NYU at night, which is what I was thinking of doing, I decided to go to Kellogg and went there in 1987 and then spent a couple of years at Kellogg. So it sounds like it was more destiny or kind of a fortuitous bounce of the ball that you ended up getting into marketing happen circumstance than it was a planned entrance. Not a plan. I knew about advertising. I didn't really know much about things like consulting or didn't really understand a lot about financial stuff. But on marketing in particular, I made the mistake a lot of people still make, frankly, which is they I equivocated advertising and marketing as being the same thing. I didn't really understand the distinction. And it really was through my experience at Pepsi that I start to see the different subfunctions of marketing and really got a lot of early data analytics in before that became more preeminent as it is today. It's interesting. I'm in the early stages of launching a second podcast, and it's going to be centered around helping college students understand what they need to do to enter the working world. And I have a college student that's helping me put together the show to try to understand what that mindset is really like. And there's two strategies these days. Go to a small company and get lots of diverse experience and work really hard and figure it out. Or go to a big company and get training and exposure to how marketing works across a broad number of channels, but really specialize in one thing. It sounds like you really had an experience that kind of spanned those two where you're working at a large company, but you're getting experience working in marketing, promotions, product development, a sort of wide variety. And you also started understanding how to use and manipulate data. I think Pepsi, as big of a company as it is at the time, I haven't really interacted with the company in a long time, but the departments were relatively small. When I was on Brand Pepsi years later, we had five people on Brand Pepsi. They had a separate promotions team, but the actual team that was running sports marketing and new product development and packaging, it was five people on a multi-billion dollar business out of headquarters. So it's lean and mean, as they say. It was kind of fun. So tell me about some of the other stops that you had that were earlier on in your career that helped shape you as a marketer and create the foundation for who you are as a marketing executive. The other kind of formative time I had was right out of business school. I went to McKinsey in consulting and I worked out of the Chicago office. I was actually there for about four years. And through that experience, probably the most important thing in my life was I met my wife, actually. So she was a client and then asked me out. She was a marketing manager on Gatorade. And that certainly was pretty important in my life. But the other thing was just seeing a lot of different companies and a lot of different, again, sub-functions of marketing over the span of years. I worked largely in consumer products and largely in marketing. So if you kind of think about it as a rows and columns, 
I was either working in marketing functions across industries or I was working in consumer products across functions. And I just saw a lot of the operating mechanics of companies in a relatively short period of time. I did realize, though, really actually was on the project where I met my wife on Gatorade that I liked what the marketing managers were doing on Gatorade more than I liked what I was doing in consulting. So I was about two and a half years in and realized, okay, I'm going to find my way back to marketing. And what I did was I ended up looking around and the company I joined in 93 was Pepsi again. The reason for that is they were going to give me the most credit for having worked at Pepsi before. Every other company I was talking to was going to have me start at a relatively junior level, but Pepsi put me in as a new products manager in 93. And that was a pretty important shift. So I think the headline for me is early in your career, you were not only exposed to different functions within the marketing team, specifically early on at Pepsi, but your experience getting your MBA, going back and getting more education, touching more about business as a broader medium. But then when you went into consulting, you were also able to see how multiple different brands function. So getting those different reps and putting a different lens sounds like it shaped who you are as a marketer because it gave you a broad view of the playing field. I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the most important things as you go from being an individual contributor to manager, to a broader manager, to a leader is lateral thinking, being able to see across the org, understanding people and decision-making and resource allocation, and that you get from a myriad of experiences. And yeah, I think in a not planful way, but a fortunate way, I was able to see a lot at a relatively young age. So talk to me about the transition now that you've grown through your early stage of your career and you moved to Pepsi, you're at a director level, you're probably starting to manage a team. What was that, call it middle management or or middle stage of your career before you were truly an executive? What was that like and what were some of the lessons you took away? Well, it's the Peter principle for those who aren't familiar with it, that you get promoted right above your level of competency. The thing that gets you to being a director and gets you promoted is that you do well as an individual contributor. You're able to manage a project. You show the ability to deliver what you say you're going to deliver or hopefully exceed that good allocation of resources. And you work well and people are motivated by working with you and others. All that is what gets you to be promoted. And what I found through that is then you have to make this transition to not being the person who gets things done yourself necessarily. You have to work through others. While at the same time, and I think this is really important, and certainly when we kind of flash forward to my experience at Facebook, you have to still have the ability that when things get rocky to go in and do things directly to get your hands dirty and get real work done. But you have to be choiceful about when you do that. And I think a lot of that comes from communications. You have to figure out how to shorthand things, get a sense of the people you're playing with, How do they play? What are their strengths and weaknesses? What things maybe are they not coming to terms with that you have to help them come to terms with? Those are all things about how you start to lead and go from being someone who does something yourself to doing things with others. Essentially, you have to be both a player and a coach at the same time. Yeah. So talk to me about what your experiences are as a player coach at the director level and what were some of the roles that were impactful for you? Well, probably the thing I got the most insight from, I think, in my next phase of my career was when I was at Pepsi, I was working on a bunch of new products. We had this strategy at the time called the Total Beverage Company. So this is where Pepsi starts to go into bottled water and different types of carbonated drinks and starts to look at where Pepsi can play in various day parts. 
And one of the things that I found, this is just relevant, but a little bit of a sidestep is to having a relationship with your boss where you have a very good trusted relationship where I have found when I'm bored, I can go into my boss and say, Hey, can you give me more to do? Now, obviously you've got to get done what they've already assigned you to do. But what happened in my case was I was working on the development of Aquafina. Actually, I started that product in 94 and it was coming along and not particularly quickly because we had a bunch of technology we had to build out with reverse osmosis, et cetera. And there was this project where my boss's boss, a guy named Brian Sweetie, who became the CMO of Pepsi and my direct boss, Bill Cobb, both those names are important names because they then are the two guys who bring me out to California. But it happened that Brian had met Howard Schultz. This is back in 94. He met Howard Schultz. Starbucks at the time had about 250 stores. And I went into Bill and Bill put me on an assignment, which was to go start working with Starbucks and figure out if we could do something together. And over the course of the next year, I was flying from New York out to Seattle all the time, working with them. They were still in their original roasting plant when we started and developed this joint venture called the North American Coffee Partnership, which still exists today. So when you see Starbucks are in a bottle or a can, those are actually Pepsi JV products. Pepsi bottles and distributes those products. And that full scope of taking something that was really an idea, forming the business model around it, creating all the JV documentation, creating a team, working with operations, product development, obviously another partner, really got me into a position where I became much more of a general manager than I had been before. Sounds like you're essentially running a startup within a larger organization. Yeah, there's a theme here. I look for those things. I actually really enjoy this entrepreneurial experience because I find it just has a diversity of experiences to it that I just enjoy. So So outside of Pepsi, eventually you make your way out to California. Tell me about the transition. And that's really where you went from the director level to being a marketing executive. Walk me through what happened and how you landed in California and what the roles were. I had an important failure between the two, which I think was pretty central to my experience. I'd actually left Pepsi in 97 and I was at IBM for a couple of years, which The short of it was an intellectually fascinating time to be at IBM. I worked on a lot of the development of IBM's e-business campaign and strategy, but I found it culturally really slow. And much like a lot of people in 99, I did a startup in e-commerce with two buddies from business school called ourhouse.com in a U-Haul with my dog and my wife and kids who were twins were about two at the time, moved out to Chicago from New York and started this startup. And the short of the story of it was we went from three people on cell phones in a conference room and a seed investment from Ace Hardware. Ace Hardware essentially outsourced their e-commerce to us. And they were our pick, pack, and ship partner. Raised about $100 million, went to 180 people, and all the way back down again to zero. Seems like the typical 1999 story is took on a ton of money, the industry dried up, we (laughs) ended up out of jobs. Yeah. And what happens through that is I got a really good education in very early internet marketing. And there's a bit of the Malcolm Gladwell article and book about the right age at the right time. I was in all of those early portal deals and realized how shitty they were and how important it was to bring math to marketing. So what happened was one of the guys on our board and a guy who got fired as the CMO of Pepsi in 1998 got hired as the first CMO of eBay in 1998, a guy named Brian Sweetie. And Brian was on our board at ourhouse.com. And my boss at Pepsi, Bill Cobb, through a series of moves, also ended up at eBay 
as the next CMO of eBay in about 2000. And they had contacted me as early as 98 and over the course of years of like, hey, you should move out to California. And Catherine and I were really resistant to moving to California and liked Chicago a lot. But I went out and interviewed with eBay in late 2001 and was just fascinated by the culture. And I think what I realized, similar to Pepsi to some degree, but certainly from being in a startup, is I just couldn't go back to a kind of classic corporate slow environment again. I wanted to be in something that was quite dynamic. And eBay certainly felt like that when I was interviewing. So we moved out to California. I kind of commuted for six months. And back then, I think eBay had 250 people in headquarters at the time, about 1,200 people totally around the world, including customer service. We were still in a set of buildings where there were still insurance offices and dentists in those offices in Campbell, which you remember, Mm -hmm. and just started growing with eBay back in early 02. So at eBay, you started off as a vice president of consumer marketing, and I guess you were the CMO of the startup of Our House. So in that experience, you have broad exposure to the entire marketing organization. But at eBay, it was your first real executive level position at a company that was of significant scale and growth trajectory. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. It's just, I think what happened was eBay was just at the beginning of the hockey stick growth. What had happened with eBay is it went public in 98 and was really doing what at the time was called the collectibles business. And people were beanie babies and stamps and things like that. And in 2002 was when eBay made the pivot to things like motors and what was called practicals. So sporting equipment, electronics, fashion, et cetera, et cetera. Really the eBay that we know today. New stuff. Yeah. And also brought in the buy it now shopping format. Up to that point, it was just auction. And that really started to accelerate the company. And what happened for me is I came in really responsible for the offline part of marketing as consumer marketing. But we went through a reorg about six months in, and I picked up internet marketing as well. When I picked that up, then I really kind of had a broader imprint to make on the company. And the also thing that was very fortuitous is in 2002, there was this little company called Google that was just starting to figure out AdWords. And just a little bit of history here, but a lot of how Google built its AdWords systems was with eBay because our appetite was so massive for keywords because we had such a long tail of products that we were buying a lot more keywords and wanted to buy a lot more keywords than Google could handle. So we helped develop a lot of the systems and thinking that Google ended up using for its AdWords and then subsequently AdSense products built upon the long tail of eBay. And that growth in the fall and winter of 02 of What became SEM, it wasn't even a term back then, but keywords and building up of that capability within eBay led to a second major acceleration of the eBay business. Right. So you're early on at eBay while Google is still being developed, and you're essentially one of the industry innovators for the search engine marketing trend. eBay helps Google figure out how to become a search marketing company. And you're also at the same time moving from being a vice president of consumer marketing and eventually you get into a general management role at eBay, move through eBay and PayPal and go along to become the chief marketing officer of eBay. So tell me about the experience that you had running the team. You're starting to take on internet marketing and how do you land as the chief marketing officer? And specifically, I'm interested in hearing what was the difference between the vice president level roles, you're an executive at a large and growing company, to being really the head honcho and the chief marketing officer and running the entire department? 
the thing that's different when you go from a functional role within a marketing organization to then running the marketing organization is the types of relationships you need to build and the results you need to think about that really take total management of that particular function. What that means is, for example, you start interacting a lot more with the CFO, certainly the COO and CEO, but a lot of your peers start to be these other functional heads. And they're looking to you similar to how I would then judge the folks who are my directs, which is who are the people you're developing within your org? Are they considered to be talented people who can scale with your organization? Do you manage your resources well? And in particular with eBay, I have to give a lot of credit with the development of what we did in internet marketing to a lot of folks who are out now in the industry who really built eBay's capability to do keyword buying. These are folks like Matt Ackley, who ran internet marketing for most of the time when I was CMO, Chris Orton, who now runs marketing for Fanatics, and Matt Madrigal and Dennis Godenberg, a bunch of people who are now happen to be at Fanatics. And we were able to create this ability to go and understand when we put money into marketing, how much would we get back and when? And as a result, our relationship with the CFO, or a guy named Rajiv Dutta, who was the CFO at the time, who sadly passed away at a young age. But Rajiv would come to us in the beginning of the quarter, let's say the quarter was running well, and he'd say, hey, I got another 5 million I can give you. What can you give me back? And we went from, I think when I started working in internet marketing at eBay up through when I became CMO to going from, I'm not sure, to, hey, we can pay you back X in Y days. We had that kind of capability. It was really extraordinary. And so much of e-commerce and so much of the web actually is arbitrage, right? You have an LTV of a customer and you have a cost of acquisition of a customer. And what is that spread? And the numbers I recall at the time is because SEM was relatively young, we would acquire customers at something like 11 to $14, and they were worth 45 That's a great spread. <laughs> so we could say to Rajiv, hey, if you give us $5 million, even if it's mid-quarter, we can pay you back within the quarter. And I got to tell you, when you're a public company and you can go do that, that is a snowball that rolls down the hill very fast. So there's a couple interesting takeaways here. First off, you're at a company that has hockey stick growth and you're becoming an executive. And the way that you're describing the difference between the roles of being a functional area expert, learning in internet marketing as internet marketing is being developed is really about cultivating the relationships and being able to identify the talent that can scale with the organization and then also managing your cross-functional partner relationships. It sounds like that's really the role of the CMO. You're in internet marketing as internet marketing is coming of age and your ability to understand the financial components and like you said, the arbitrage game and be able to manipulate the data and understand what your return is going to be is what set you and eBay apart as marketers. And early on in your career, you talked about being at Pepsi and it's like, hey, they put me in front of a green screen and said, I'm going to be an analyst and I'm starting to manipulate data. So time for a one minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then. And instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. 
Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Talk to me a little bit about how you think the application and use of data How important is that to marketers today as opposed to developing an understanding of brand components? I think that just continually becomes more and more vital, the ability to understand and manage data. And frankly, if I were out hiring today, I wouldn't hire me. I would. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But I'm not as data capable as a lot of people I work with. It's the old Justice Stevens line, I know it when I see it. But I don't have a data analytics capability that matches a lot of the people that I now hire. And what I would point to is I do think it's easier to learn the creative capability and understand how to judge good creative than it is to learn data analytics. And as a result, I really do encourage people to push themselves as undergrads and certainly if they go on to some kind of master's program to really understand data analytics. I mean, to flash forward to Facebook, we couldn't hire enough data analytics people and Google's the same way. These are very much sought after jobs. And I think now fundamental to a good marketing career over time is that capability. So thanks for making the transition for me. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. Hey, I'll be the host. You be the guest. (laughs) Kidding aside, eventually you move away from eBay and you move to a startup called Plastic Jungle, but eventually you move on to work in large companies like Google and Facebook. And they are digital companies. The internet marketing component of marketing has sort of taken over. Talk to me about the fundamental shift for marketers as you're working at some of the largest tech companies in the world. I think the biggest thing that was different from me at Google and Facebook than at eBay, I guess there was probably two parts. One was they're still founder-led. And as a result, the focus on product and engineering I just found to be much higher than I found at eBay and even at PayPal, because I had a stint at PayPal while I was at eBay. And PayPal is a very good product organization and kind of famously a lot of exceptional product managers and founders came out of PayPal. But with Google, I really learned product marketing to a degree that I hadn't really seen it at eBay or PayPal. And it is this interaction between the product manager and the marketer that becomes key to understanding Google and then Facebook. They have these relatively small sub-teams within these larger teams that operate in the almost classic way Proctor did back in the day of brand managers, hub of the wheel, managing the cross-functional interactions. And those small and as a result, more agile teams and the interaction of those is what I think is now the more 
current marketing structural model for good orgs. Okay, I think that's one of the things that's the most interesting to me about Google is their organizational structure. And I think that they've actually gone through a marketing exercise of rebranding the company to be Alphabet, and Google is one of the products. Talk to me about what you see as the difference between marketing, the big umbrella term, and then product marketing. How do you think about the delineation? Well, the best summation I ever heard of product marketing is from a guy named Andy Burnt, who runs the creative shop at Google. So that's their internal ad agency out of New York. And he said that the role of a product marketer is to know the user, know the magic, and connect the two. So know the user is pretty obvious, which is just from a consumer or customer understanding. You are the person as a marketer who is supposed to carry that mantle for the company. Know the magic means you really understand the product too. You are close enough to understanding the detail of how a product works, that you have good relationships with the product managers and engineers, such that you can be helpful in feature development, as well as obviously your role as a marketer and making sure things launch well and that you drive retention. But connecting the two is really the key part of a product marketer where you're this person who has a really good understanding of the user and also a good understanding of the product and are able to integrate those two into a benefit for the organization. Marketing more broadly, it starts to pick up not only that function, but the other areas of customer acquisition, retention mechanics, obviously communications and things like that, that are more classic parts of the marketing business system. But product marketing at its core is very close by definition to the product and is at the core of these more modern marketing organizations. To me, there's an interesting parallel using some startup verbiage where people say product marketing. I think often now it's also referred to as growth hacking, like the understanding of who the customers are and what are the mechanics you need to get them through the funnel to be retained and valuable customers. And I do think that there's a balance and something that we talk a lot about in this show of the blend of the art and science of marketing and Product management, to me, gets more into the science of being data-driven, understanding how your product is functioning, and being able to glean understanding of who your customers are based on their behaviors, as opposed to marketing is a broader topic that does everything from branding and awareness all the way into your product marketing roles. Yeah. And one of the best, if not the best growth marketer in the world is a guy named Alex Schultz, who you maybe remember Alex from eBay days, who's at eBay International, but he's now been at Facebook a little over 10 years, I think. Brilliant marketer. Amazing. And a lot of the folks that we had talked about a little bit earlier at eBay are in those kinds of class. We're fortunate that we all learn these things at early days. But Alex thinks a lot in basis points and clearly in retention. You know, the secrets to these products isn't customer acquisition, it's retention. Customer acquisition is a means to get to retention, and you've got to figure out how to drive retention. And the way particularly Facebook thinks about it is these basis point wins that compound over time, much like Warren Buffett and interest rates. These things just compound over time to provide growth. And those wins, those kind of quick test and learn wins are really central to how you build a growth organization. Yeah, it's the small step forward approach as opposed to the large leap, it seems like. So you've, again, made the jump from being at Google to now talking about Facebook. I want to talk to you about your experience there. You were in charge of the marketing team at one of the largest digital properties in the world, but it's also an inherently viral platform. So what is the role of the marketing team at Facebook? I always joke about that. People always said to me, what does Facebook need marketing for? Is that the hardest or the easiest job in the world? Yeah, exactly. I think it's both. 
And it's hard in the sense that internally, I think the organization had to learn why it needed marketing. And that to something we were just talking about, that really did start with product marketing and demonstrating that that was a function that was pretty important to the growth of the company over time. To kind of set the clock back to 2010, 11, 12, Facebook at the time would just launch new products and wasn't communicating them to its users and would really piss people off with feature changes and app changes that people didn't understand. And what product marketing came in and started to do is we kind of built that function over time was to, again, work in these kind of small sub teams and start to develop benefits and clearer communication to people and better organization of launches to make sure that what was reaching people was understandable. If I go back to one of the first things I worked on when I got to Facebook in 2013 was we had this essentially an Excel spreadsheet of all the features we would be launching. And there was no understanding when you looked at these rows of whether one feature was a bigger thing than another feature. So I went to my boss, Chris Cox, and we developed this rolling three-week calendar where there was a line across the middle of the page. You kind of turn it in landscape. And on the top were things we thought we were going to be, people would like. And on the bottom were things that we thought were kind of risky. And we would show these launches and then we'd annotate with the resources around them, et cetera, et cetera. And this rolling three-week calendar, he kind of looked at it and he goes, oh, this is visually a lot easier to understand. And I think it was in my third or fourth week. And he said, hey, we should bring this to Mark. And I remember walking across campus and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon and Mark wanted to go get nachos. So we're walking across campus and Chris says to me, hey, Gary, you should show Mark what you developed. And I pull it out of my back pocket and I show it to him. And he looks at it and he goes, this looks like process, very (laughs) disparagingly. And it is now what Facebook uses, but Facebook just didn't really want to deal with having any kind of process. It really resisted that. And a lot of what we developed in the marketing capabilities early on was just helping the organization run better and communicate better. That's interesting. So essentially, Facebook has been known to be a very engineering-centric organization. It's about product development from its earliest days. And the role of the marketing team was primarily around communications at first and not necessarily focusing on traditional marketing metrics that we would think of like customer acquisition and LTV. I'm sure you were looking at that, but really your role was formalizing how you communicate with your customers. Yeah. And to be kind of precise about it, Facebook runs its growth operations as a totally separate organization. So Alex actually runs that in a different functional area called growth. Mm -hmm. And PR and public policy also run as separate organizations as well. So our role really was more in developing communication suites to our users in a large part in the product. So a lot of what you see when you're on Facebook, that's communications from Facebook is actually from the marketing department. Those videos you see about your year in review or your birthday or things like that, those are also things that are developed by the marketing department. So the marketing department at Facebook's responsibility is really to retain customers and help them understand what the new features are. And help them then grow over time. That's right. So when you started at Facebook, it was right around the time of the WhatsApp acquisition, right after Instagram. Yeah, it was a little bit right after the Instagram acquisition, about a year and a half before WhatsApp. Right. So to me, like that's the, I don't want to say the golden age of Facebook because the company is going to have a long life and every company has its ups and downs, but that was a high growth period, some very visible acquisitions. And Facebook was seen as the internet darling, very much in the same way that eBay was when you and I worked together there almost a decade before. Mm -hmm. And since then, there's obviously been some bumps in the road where Facebook's data practice has been called under scrutiny. I I won't go into all the 
the things that have happened. I think that people think and look at Facebook in a different way, and it's hit a different trajectory in terms of its growth curve. Sure. So talk to me about being a marketing leader during times of adversity. I think that when you're leading an organization in a time of adversity, the most important thing you have to do is go back to principles. And I think that's why it's so important to establish those early on and confirm those early on in your tenure in a marketing organization. Even if you're relatively junior in an organization is understanding them. And it's an interesting context, which is we have spent, and rightly so, a lot of time talking about the data part of marketing. And that is really vital. But the kind of classic part of marketing of brand equity and understanding kind of core equities of a company also are really vital. And when you are challenged and have deal with some adversity, what people are really calling into question are those things. And if you as a company aren't really clear about them and the employees in the company don't feel a connection to them, it becomes very hard to lead in those moments. And that is the conversation that's happening about technology right now. It's happening about Facebook, certainly, but also Google and even Apple. Everybody's dealing with this in a large degree because it does get to a relationship that a person has with a service, a consumer or a customer has with a company. And in adversity, people are really getting down to who are you? What motivates you? How do you make decisions? Should I trust you? And that requires you within the company to be clear about those things too. The interesting thing to me is that as we talk about dealing with adversity, you as a data-driven marketer, it was something that you started working on early in your career. But when, excuse the term, the shit hits the fan, you have to fall back on some of the brand principles of who are we, how do we provide value to the customers, and what is our mission? Yeah, I mean, it's really telling that, and I dealt with this at Google to some degree too. Lorraine Tuhill, by the way, who's the CMO of Google, is extraordinary and very principles-driven. I resigned from Facebook in January of last year of 2018 and didn't leave until much later in the year as I went and hired my replacement. But when we were going through all these issues in early part of 2018, the very people who might three or four years earlier have wondered why marketing was around would literally stop me in the hallway and say, are you going to save us? <laughs> Boy, am I glad you're here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank God marketing showed up. And that is, I think, very telling in lots of ways. It's telling about the fact that marketing is coming of age within these companies. It's telling about how people do think about the nature of principles in these times of crisis and why it's so important in any institution. It could be a White House to a Silicon Valley company. You've got to have a core set of principles that when crisis occurs, and they will occur, you know who you are and why you make the decisions you do. So thinking about your experience as a marketer, you've obviously been tremendously successful. You've had a wide set of diverse experiences. And a little bit of your story is, I was at the right place at the right time. I gave a beer to a guy that worked at Pepsi, and the next thing you know, I was working there. <laughs> I happened to be at eBay, and it's the rise of the internet marketing team, and the company down the street decides they're going to start a search engine marketing. Obviously, had some fortuitous bounces and your broad experience. You're flexible. You're a smart guy. As you look back on your career and you think about getting to you know the mountaintop of being a marketer, what are some of the things that you reflect on and what are some of the lessons that you would pass along to other marketers who aspire to be CMOs? Well, I think the thing that I come back to, and it's so important in my own life, is I married well. I really did. I partnered really well with Catherine. And as a result, we were open as a couple to taking risks and doing things that other folks thought were destabilizing, whether that's moving or changing jobs. 
And when I did change jobs, what happened was when things were bad, I just recovered from those bad experiences or from those kind of failures quickly. I didn't really wallow in them and was able to move on. Now, I would also tell you that if I hadn't moved to California back in 2002, we wouldn't be talking right now. I think that is a circumstance where I was in Chicago. I was interviewing to be the CMO of Wrigley and looked like I was going to get that job. And this is one other kind of interesting story in my career. I was interviewing with this guy. It was about 6.30 at night and the interview had gone really well. And he started talking about the offer, et cetera. And the phone rings and it's the guy's son. And the son had missed his train coming from the suburbs where he went to high school to get downtown to meet his dad. And his dad starts screaming at him. And Catherine and I were going to stay in Chicago. And I realized, oh my God, the guy who's screaming as his son, that's my boss, not the guy who's been charming me over the last hour. And I quietly just withdrew from the interview process about three days later. But if that phone call hadn't happened, there's a high probability I would have stayed in Chicago. So the point in this is I was able to recover from things quickly, but for sure, a huge part of my career has been, as you put it, fortunate bounces of the ball. And I don't take any of that for granted. I recognize that I've been really, really lucky in how the ball's bounced many times. What's interesting to me talking to you and some of the other CMO coaches is how much of the lessons that have been learned are about confidence, how much of them are about setting up a support system, and how much of them are about not taking the losses personally. And I think that to me, the reflection is, I'll use my career right now as an example, the podcast download numbers don't necessarily dictate who I am as a person or how successful I am as a marketer, right? You can only control the inputs, not the outputs. So if there's any major takeaway that I have is build a support system and it's a journey, learn the lessons that you can along the way, but don't take them as a reflection of who you are personally, because you never know what's going to happen in business and your career. And so you just have to keep running the marathon. There's a great line and it gets used from time to time, but the credit goes to Lori Goler. You remember Lori from our eBay days, but Lori has been running HR, what's called the people team at Facebook for the last 10 years. And Lori's line is, it's not a ladder, it's a jungle gym. And you look at LinkedIn profiles of folks who have my kind of background and it all looks super linear to a large degree. You're like, oh, you went from this to that, to this, to that. And there's your ladder. It's not that. Everybody I talk to who's had the types of careers I've had it is much more like a jungle gym. And there's the people you meet along the way who help you out when things go wrong, including hopefully the people you surround yourself and your family, if you're fortunate in that way, and off you go. And I really tried to not take any of this for granted, to just recognize that I've been fortunate with a set of capabilities to make some good decisions and to have, I guess, the backbone to deal with failure when it's hit. I think that's interesting that the career path is not always linear and not to blow too much sunshine at you. But I mentioned earlier in the podcast in our introduction that you were one of my marketing role models. And to me, when I think of the demeanor of a marketer and being confident without being aggressive or arrogant, you're the first person that pops into my mind. Thanks, man. That's nice. Thank you. It's the gods to honest truth. And I remember when I was at eBay and you were first announced as a CMO, and I think maybe you'd been there for a month or two in the role, but you gave a speech and it said, normally I don't give speeches. And I remember it being incredibly eloquent and poignant. And honestly, I don't even remember what the speech was about, but the tone <laughs> of a marketer is something that I have always appreciated your tone and your ability to communicate effectively and clearly in a format that the smartest and the dumbest guy in the room can understand and appreciate that it's meant to be for them. 
I'll just leave you with one story, which I think is really informative in how I've thought about business. And it goes back to earlier in my career at Pepsi, which for me is, has this great loop to it. There was a guy named Don Keogh, who was the president of Coke. And when old Coke, new Coke happened and they introduced new Coke and it was a total flop. And then they brought back Coke Classic, as it was called at the time. The chairman of Coke was a guy named Roberto Guisueta and Don Keogh was his right hand. And in a press conference, they asked Keogh, didn't you plan this all along that you would take our Coke away and then bring it back? And wasn't this all publicity stunt? And his response is so awesome. He said, we're not that smart and we're not that dumb. <laughs> and I think that's a huge thing of how to think about business. You know, if you always carry yourself as you're just the smartest person around, you're not going to learn anything. And God, I mean, these functions have evolved so much and will continue to evolve through our lifetimes and our kids' lifetimes. But you're also not that dumb. And in terms of not being dumb, you've got to be not dumb about lots of different things and increasingly much more lateral things. So I come back to Keo's quote all the time of how to think about the combination, as you put it, of humility and also intellect. And both those things are important, I think, to make sure you continue to adopt and adapt and learn through your career. Well, Gary, I appreciate the advice and I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. I've learned a lot from this conversation. I hope other marketers will as well. And that wraps up this episode of CMO Week on the MarTech Podcast. Thanks again to Gary Briggs for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Gary, you can find his LinkedIn profile through the link in our show notes, or you can send him a tweet at gbriggs, which is G-B-R-I-G-G-S. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thanks for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you. So we created benjshap.com slash question, where you can send us your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing technology and knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got some great episodes lined up for you, including another episode with one of our special CMO coaching guests tomorrow. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.